Welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Indian Ocean World Podcast. Thank you for downloading. My name is Renee Manderville, a project manager at the Indian Ocean World Center, or IOWC, at McGill University. I'm joined by Drs. Archisman Chowdhury and Philip Gooding, both postdoctoral fellows at the IOWC. Hello, Renee. Thank you so much for having me here again. Hi, Renee, and hi, Archisman. Uh, great to see you again. Great to see both of you again. Thank you for joining us. Uh, you will hear more from them later, but our guest today is Dr. Anna Winterbottom, a research associate at the IOWC and a collaborator on McGill University's SSHRC-funded Gwilym Project, which explores the lives of two early 19th century women in Madras, Elizabeth Gwilym and Mary Simons. Anna received her PhD at University of London, UK, and came to Canada in 2012 for a postdoctoral fellowship at the IOWC at McGill. Thereafter, Anna held a British Academy postdoctoral fellowship at the Centre for World Environmental History at the University of Sussex between 2014 and 2018. With research that generally covers the early modern Indian Ocean region and European colonial presence within this area between 1500 and 1800 CE, Anna is particularly interested in the history of medicine, science, and the environment. She is the author of Hybrid Knowledge in the Early East India Company World, published by Palgrave in 2016, and the co-editor of Histories of Medicine and Healing in the Indian Ocean World, Palgrave 2015, as well as the East India Company and the Natural World, Palgrave 2014. In 2017, Anna won the J. Worth Estes Prize of the American Society for the History of Medicine for her journal article of the China Route, a case study of the early modern circulation of Materia Medica, published in Social History of Medicine. Today, we are lucky to have Anna with us to discuss her forthcoming journal article, Becoming Traditional, a transnational history of neem and biopiracy discourse, to be published with Osiris in the University of Chicago Press Journals. So without further ado, Anna, it is such a pleasure to record with you today. Thank you so much for joining us. Hello, Renee, Ojisman, and Philip. Thanks so much for having me here today. Um, so as a starting point, uh, I'd just like to ask you a few introductory questions. Do you mind just introducing your chapter, becoming traditional to our listeners, as well as perhaps delving into what inspired you to begin researching biopiracy and why you chose meme as your focus? Thanks, Renee. Yes, the article is coming out, as you mentioned, in a forthcoming issue of Osiris. And the issue is entitled Global Medical Cultures, Property and Properties and Laws. The final shape of the piece owes a lot to the editor of this issue, Helen Tilly. So I'd just like to take a moment to thank her for all of her insights. So to get to the piece, I'll start by briefly explaining what neem and biopiracy are, and then I'll move on to answer your question. Uh, neem is a tree, it's a member of the mahogany family. It's native to South Asia and perhaps to Southeast Asia. And it has many medicinal and agricultural uses. Its scientific name or its binomial is Azadiracta indica. Biopiracy is a term that was coined in the 1990s, um, mostly within activist circles, to describe the appropriation of natural resources and associated knowledge from indigenous farming or local communities. 
Namneen became associated with biopiracy because of two legal cases, both begun in 1995, in which activists mounted legal challenges to two patents on neem derivatives. The patents were both for use in biopesticides and they were held by an American agrochemical company, W.R. Grace. So the Neem court cases were very high profile and they attracted a lot of attention from the international media and the public. And it really helped the concept of biopiracy to become part of international discourse around intellectual property and around the patents on genetic material in particular. So some key questions that the article asks are, firstly, why did the Neem case attract so much attention? And second, why was Neem framed as an article of Indian tradition in particular in this modern debate? I can give you some straightforward answers to those questions. So Grace's Neem patents were taken out at a key moment in the globalization of intellectual property law. 1995 was also the year in which the agreement on trade-related aspects of intellectual, intellectual property rights, known as TRIPS, came into force. Now, TRIPS is very controversial, and that's partly because it required members of the World Trade Organization, the WTO, to accept patents on living organisms when they had been modified um, by um, scientists and on related microbiological processes. So activists used the Neem patents and the court cases that challenged them to highlight some of the problems with allowing um, patents on plants, and they framed this as biopiracy. As for why Neem was framed as an article of Indian tradition, well, um, Neem clearly has a very long history of use in South Asia, and it also has important cultural associations there. So Neem clearly is traditional in the straightforward sense, and I'm not trying to challenge that idea in the article. Looking more closely at Neem's history, however, re reveals that Neem is not solely traditional, nor is India the only place where it is regarded as a traditional medicine, a traditional resource. Patents on Neem have actually been taken out since the 1920s, and particularly in India. And Neem also has a long history of appearing in commercial products like soap and toothpaste. Um, as a director, Indika also has other identities elsewhere in the world. And perhaps here I can get back to your question about my original inspiration for the paper. I myself first encountered the tree not in India, but in East Africa, where it's widely known in Swahili as Moirubani, a name which uh, refers to its 40 uses. The name is also widely known and regarded as an African traditional medicine in other parts of East and West Africa. It's also regarded as a traditional resource in Southeast Asia. And in parts of Southeast Asia, the tree itself is actually quite different. So most obviously, uh, Thai neem lacks the very bitter, neem, uh, very bitter leaves that are usually characteristic of the tree. So my initial inspiration was thinking about how these other traditions got obscured by the way that neem was represented in the legal case. So what the paper is exploring essentially is how a tree that was widely known has several different identities in different places and has long been the subject of scientific investigation becomes discursively framed as traditional and associated with a particular place, in this case, India.
Thank you so much for that answer, Anna, um, and for just reviewing the inspirations for your chapter. Uh, I just have another question for passing questioning over to our, our postdoctoral fellows. You begin your journal article with a quote by Indian scholar Vandana Shiva, where she states that the properties of neem that make it useful as a biopesticide have been known and used in India for centuries. They were not an innovation of the scientists who have been granted patents for neem biopesticide. Such intellectual property rights are in fact intellectual piracy rights. Um, so I was just wondering if you could unpack that quote for our listeners and perhaps develop the separation which you emphasize in your journal article between the traditional and the innovative and intellectual property and intellectual piracy, uh, perhaps drawing on certain examples of intellectual and patent neocolonialism uh, that is exercised by the US and Europe to the disadvantage of countries like India. Sure, thanks. Um, so Vandana Shiva is someone who is really central to developing and popularizing the concept of biopiracy. And the Neem case was really central to, her de to the development of her thinking about both biopiracy and patents. So she published books on both these subjects and the Neem case appears as an important case study in both cases. Um, so here in this passage, Shiva is doing two things that interest me. First, she's claiming that the knowledge of Neem's um, useful properties is Indian traditional knowledge. And she's doing that by situating it in the past. Second, she's framing that knowledge as prior art, and this rela relates directly to the patent challenge. So I'll just explain that a little. One key requirement for any patent is that it must be innovative. In other words, there must be a significant difference between the process or object that's claimed in the patent and what came before the prior art. And this has to be a step, that, an, an innovative step that's not obvious to somebody of ordinary skill in the art. So Shiva and those who worked with her on the legal challenges actually won their cases because they claimed that the patents held by Grace were not significantly innovative given the knowledge already held by farmers and other, other groups in India. So to come to your question about the contrast between traditional knowledge and innovation, Shiva frames traditional knowledge as long-standing, communal, and freely shared, in contrast to patented scientific innovations, which she regards often as the plunder and privatization of nature. But in fact, at the same time, she's actually equating traditional knowledge with innovation by framing the knowledge of Neem as prior art. And indeed, she needed to do this in order to win the legal cases. There was and there still is no way to challenge a patent on the grounds of biopiracy as such. My own view is that uh, traditional knowledge is not a stable entity that can be contrasted with something called innovation or modern science. And the same is true of traditional medicine, which is often contrasted with biomedicine or allopathy. Instead, um, I like to think about these things as concepts that emerged in dialogue from one another from the 19th century onwards. In practice, so-called traditional and scientific knowledge are often impossible to separate from one another. So for example, in the history section of the paper, I show that neem began to be claimed as a key ingredient of Indian traditional medicines, Ayurveda, Yunani, and Siddha, at the very same stage when these medical systems themselves were being reimagined 
including by borrowing techniques from biomedicine. So is this traditional knowledge, is it modern knowledge, scientific knowledge, it's, it's almost impossible to say. To give you another example, during the early 20th century, Indian entrepreneurs took out patents on the use of chemical compounds derived from neem for use in commercial soaps. And these products were marketed on the basis of uh, neem's traditional status as a medicine, but they might themselves best be called neo-traditional. Uh, coming to biopiracy and intellectual privacy, these are also polemic terms. Of course, though, although of course the appropriation of natural resources and associated knowledge in the colonial and post-colonial period is very real, and that's not something I'm trying to, to challenge or deny. Um, but one of the things I do want to point out in the article is that appropriations of knowledge can happen in all directions. For example, India's traditional knowledge digital library was a government initiative which was set up to counter the perceived threat of biopiracy. However, the traditional knowledge digital library now lays claim on behalf of Indian traditional medicines to a very wide range of substances and techniques, including many that were originally borrowed from Africa or the Middle East. So aloes is an example of that. Um, aloes originally come from Africa um, and they're long used in African medicine, but um, they're also claimed as an Ayurvedic medicine. So I think this, um, this brings us to an interesting um, point, which is that conflicts over the ownership of knowledge don't only take place between biomedicine and traditional medicine, but within different systems of traditional medicine. Um, India now has a booming biotechnology industry of its own, of course, and many of the medicines that it produces and distributes globally are also patent protected. So what I'm saying here is that while the issue was framed in the 1990s as a question of Western science versus Indian tradition, the reality is far more complex. Thank you, Anna, and uh, thank you for clarifying that for me. Um, I will now pass questioning on to our fellow hosts. So Artisman, do you have any questions for Anna? Uh, yes, thank you, Rani. Um, Anna, you mentioned throughout your work that neem is also a traditional crop in Sri Lanka, Southeast Asia, and East Africa, and that globalization has also greatly blurred the scope of neem's native growth territory. So I was wondering if you could discuss how neem became most significantly associated and traditionalized in India as opposed to its other localized territories? Yes, thanks so much for the question. Um, so firstly, we're not sure, or botanists are not sure where the species Asteractor indica actually originated. So most of them would opt for a location in modern Burma based on the diversity of leaf shapes found there. Others think it has a wider area of, of native growth covering much more of South Asia and possibly Southeast Asia. And today, um, as a director, Indica grows over most warm areas of the world. And some of the spread of neem beyond its native area of growth is probably very old. Um, so, it, um, for example, by looking at the literary evidence, we can see that the Sanskrit name for neem, Nimba, had already traveled to Java, where it became Mimba before the 15th century. 
And from the 18th century onwards, neem was already spreading further afield, including across the Indian Ocean to the Mascarene Islands and to the Caribbean. In some cases, the tree was planted in these new territories by European botanists. And in other cases, it was carried by migrants and including probably Indian indentured workers. So I think this is an, an interesting example of um, a sort of quiet globalization of a different way and that plants can become, um, and become global, something that's not orchestrated by any particular state or um, by a commercial agency, but something that really happens from below. But I found that a really uh, ironic aspect of Neem's story was that this global spread was actually happening while Neem was simultaneously becoming understood as particularly Indian. And so why does this happen? Um, I think that the identification of Neem as Indian partly came about because of a comparison with another tree, which also gave Neem its binomial. And the other tree is a very similar species, um, Melia azoteract. It's also um, one of the mahogany family. And it's also called the Persian lilac. Now, as that name suggests, it grows in the Middle East as well as in India and other parts of the world. So under the Mughal regime, partly, um, and then under the Raj, Neem became regarded as Azadiracta Indica, or the Indian Azadiracta. It's also called the Indian Lilac. So this is one example of what I mean by plant entanglements. So Neem became Indian because Melia was seen as Persian, even though both trees, in fact, are, are more widespread than that. So later on, the claim to Neem as being particularly Indian became politicized as the early 20th century Swadeshi movement emphasized reliance on local resources as a way to escape from colonial domination. And so I think by the time the patent controversy came around, Neem was seen as quintessentially Indian. And of course, that status was reinforced even further by the legal challenges so that Neem is um, now used as a uh, symbol of Indian national pride. So for example, um, you will often see prominent Indian politicians posing for photographs, cleaning their teeth with a, a Neem twig, which is one of the traditional uses of Neem. Thank you, Anna. That's very interesting. Uh, I was also curious about the fact that throughout your journal article, you make several comparisons between the history of Neem and Cinchona with regards to bioprospecting, biopiracy, and imperial, imperialistic attitudes towards ecological species in general. At one point, you even state that Neem became traditional because Cinchona became modern. What do you mean by that statement? And could you elaborate on the clearly entwined relationship between these two species, their similarities and dissimilarities, and the ways that they have been considered and treated within the scientific and medical world, as well as in the world of international patents? Thanks so much for the question. Yes, I think Cinchona is interesting because its history provides both a parallel and a contrast with that of Neem. And I hope that highlighting this illustrates what I was saying earlier about the ways in which so-called traditional and modern medicine are in fact co-constituted categories. 
Uh, the story of Cinchona has really dominated the history of medicines or the history of, of drugs. And one reason for that is that it exemplifies the sort of story that's often been told about bioprospecting or historical biopiracy, as well as presenting a straightforward trajectory from traditional to modern, from local to global. To summarize the story very quickly, um, Cinchona was long known in the Andean region as a medicine. From the 17th century onwards, reports of its use in treating fever reached Europe. The so-called Peruvian buck became a very valuable commodity, <clears throat> but its source remained a well-kept Spanish secret until the 19th century. At this stage, uh, British and French colonial networks acquired the seeds uh, through a series of acts of botanical espionage. Essentially, they went and stole them from Spanish territories. And they began to uh, cultivate cinchona plantations. The ability to access cinchona and later quinine, which is the alkaloid derived from cinchona, then enabled further colonial ventures, including in Africa, because of the protection it offered against malaria. So cinchona's history suggests a pattern in which local natural resources were plundered by European colonial regimes, transformed um, with the aid of science and medicine, and then used to enable further exploitation. So Neem's history um, presents us with a much more complex picture. Like Santoni, Neem became known to European travelers and settlers in the early modern period. And it was also used by them primarily to treat fever. So the two substances, Neem and Santoni, became associated with one another. So that Neem was often described as an alternative to Santoni or even mistaken for it. As Pratik Chakrabarti has also described, a search for alternatives to Sinchona was important to colonial regimes during the 18th century. But by the 19th century, that search was sidelined in favor of transplanting Sinchona. And we can see this process at work in the way that Neem went from being described as a rival to Sinchona uh, to, be to being seen as merely a local substitute for it. So my point is that in the colonial period, Neem was conceptualized in relation to Sinchona, and this determined the ways in which it was used, understood, and ultimately rejected. Uh, to give an example of this, chemists even tried to isolate quinine from Neem. Um, in fact, Neem's active ingredient, Asteractin, is not actually an alkaloid at all. It's a different type of chemical compound. Um, by the, uh, but that wasn't discovered until the 1960s. Um, by the early 20th century, a series of clinical trials carried out in colonial hospitals in, in India compared Neem with Sintona, and they definitively rejected Neem as a treatment for malaria based on this comparison. So as far as the colonial medical service was concerned, Neem was then relegated to the ranks of traditional medicines, local medicines. So what I'm saying is that conceptually, Neem actually moved in the opposite direction to Sintona. Having started out already being pretty global by the early modern period, it became increasingly regarded as local and traditional uh, by the 19th century. To make a, a more general point about this, biomedicine in general tends to rely on a limited number of substances that can be controlled and produced in, an, in fairly standard ways. So what we see is that there are a whole lot of substances that were widely used in the early modern period. 
um, which got ejected from pharmacopoeias. Um, and what are sometimes called neo-traditional forms of healing often, often revive and celebrate these remedies that have been rejected or temporarily sidelined by biomedicine. And I think this is often because it's easier to link them back to historical practices than it is with substances that have been uh, physically and conceptually transformed by being turned into commodities. So um, to look at this from the other side of the question for a moment, uh, cinchona was also a traditional remedy once, but no one has tried to claim it as such. No one challenges uh, modern patents on quinine because they've just become, it's, the substance has just become too tied up with the identity of biomedicine to make it easy to do that. Thank you so much, Anna. I will now pass questioning over to Philip. Thanks, Archisman. And uh, thank you, Anna, for uh, your really fascinating paper here, your fascinating answers to our, to our questions. Um, my first question actually stems very much from the answer you've just given to Archisman's question. In your article, you briefly mentioned that the Neem case set challenges to patent-making attempts on turmeric and basmati rice, where the Indian government played a prominent role. I was wondering if you'd explain this statement. How did the Neem case shift the discourse and international consideration of organic patentability? Further, has the biopiracy label in itself shifted international protocols with respect to patenting biomes? Thanks so much, Philip, for the question. Um, yes, as I said, the legal challenges um, to the Neem-related patents were led by activists, although Vandana Shiva did have uh, support from branches of the Indian government. Um, both turmeric and basmati rice, like Neem, were the subject of US patent, patents and of legal challenges, which overturned at least some of the claims that these patents made. I think uh, partly inspired by the victory in the case of Neem, um, the Indian government took on a more prominent uh, role in the legal case of turmeric in particular. In this case, uh, turmeric's use in wound healing was patented by expatriate Indian scientists working in the US. And this patent was overturned after Indian government agencies produced um, examples of prior art. And I think this is interesting because at this stage, the Indian government was really asserting um, state ownership of traditional knowledge. And that's something different to what Vandana Shiva was doing. She was arguing that patents um, on plants should just not be allowed. So the, the discourse has shifted a little bit here. So I think perhaps some of the most interesting shifts in how plant patents were perceived that resulted from the Neem case took place within India. Um, the legal cases led to attempts to more clearly situate traditional knowledge as property. Um, so if you look at the patents in the, granted by the Indian Patent Office during the time of the Neem case, from about 1995 to 2005, they actually peak. So Indian scientists were taking out more patents um, on Neem at this time. Um, so there was a, this attempt to claim Neem as property and specifically as the property of the Indian state. And this was a significant shift in Indian patent law, which since the 1970s had really tried to exclude all plant-related um, products from patentability. So ironically, while uh, Shiva was using Neem to argue against patents on life, the Neem case and the idea of biopiracy were actually being used in exactly the opposite ways 
in policy circles in India. Um, internationally, the Neem case was very important in bringing the concept of biopiracy out from activist circles into the mainstream. And preventing biopiracy was one of the key motivations between, behind the um, 2010 Nagoya, Nagoya Protocol. And this aims to regulate access to genetic resources and promote benefit sharing. Importantly, though, this is still um, voluntary. So um, governments will sign up to this. There is still no legal means to uh, challenge a patent on the basis of biopiracy. Um, importantly, also the wider battle which Vandana Shiva and his, her fellow activists were embarked on, that is to roll back the trend towards patents on life, um, including human, animal, as well as genetic material, as well as plant genetic material, was lost during the 1990s. So we still have patents on, on those things. Thanks very much, Anna. Um, I've just one final question before we wrap up. Actually, there are probably a clump of questions. Um, it appears that the successful appeal of the WR Grace patent was an empowering moment for Indian scientists, innovators, the Indian government, and indigenous Indian peoples alike. And from the, that successful appeal, India became more involved with the international community with respect to patent applications and grants. But more recently, Neem has become recognized as a highly lucrative and multi-purpose ingredient in various products and exclusively vended pharmaceutical drugs. So I was wondering if you could speak to the extent that Neem's increased movement and availability as a commercial ingredient and biome of study has impacted the organization and innovative desirability of the plant. Has the, reduction of has the reduction of patent implementation due to threats of biopiracy inadvertently reduced innovative thought and research on widely accessible ecology? Um, thanks, Philip. Yes, I think the victory um, in the Neem case was an empowering moment. Um, and it had the effect of bringing together um, many different parties who in fact had quite different ideas about what traditional knowledge is and who, if anyone, could claim, should claim ownership of it. Um, the Neem case, as I said already, was an important victory and I think highlighting uh, the appropriation of traditional knowledge is, is something very important that it did succeed in doing. Um, neem, in fact, has still not become a key ingredient in patented pharmaceutical drugs which are widely distributed. And in many ways, this is very surprising because of the number of studies that demonstrate its potential um, as such. Its key use in the 1990s was in biopesticides and uh, specifically in bioinsecticides. It retains, it retains that use today and it does continue to appear in patents. Um, so the, the challenge to the patents in 1990s didn't discourage more patents from being filed. Um, I think this gets less attention nowadays because the conflict between large agrochemical companies and environmental activists now focuses more on issues like genetically modified crops. I don't think this is the end of the Neem story though. Um, since 2008 particularly we've seen innovations in nanotechnology and the synthesis of azotoraptin, which might lead to new uses of Neem derivatives. And in turn, we'll see more legal questions. So for example, how far does a patent, um, how much does a patent on a synthetic form of one of Neem's derivatives owe to traditional knowledge of Neem's properties? 
Um, Neem does remain a very powerful symbol of traditional knowledge today. And while I was finishing up writing this paper um, in the spring, I was reading online about rumors um, from Nigeria to Malaysia, as well as in India, that Neem could be used to treat COVID-19 symptoms. Um, government officials, health officials in many of these places were actually desperately trying to discourage people from trying Neem on themselves because Neem, if taken in the wrong way or taken too much, can be poisonous. Um, but just recently, these rumors have now been followed by lab-based studies that have tested Neem derivatives against um, um, hydrochloroquine, um, which is, of course, related to quinine, the alkaloid derived from cinchona. So it's, it's very interesting to me that these old comparisons between Neem and cinchona are resurfacing yet again in this new context. Um, I just want to be clear here at the end, I'm not advocating any particular treatment for COVID-19. Um, I'm not advocating taking Neem or otherwise. Um, my interest here is purely historical. <laughs> Thanks. Th Thanks, Anna. Um, that's really interesting. Um, I'll pass back to Rene to wrap up. Um, <clears throat> thank you, Philip, and thank you, Anna, for answering all of, the, all of our questions today and for giving us a privileged peek into your forthcoming publication with OSIRIS. Uh, links to some of Anna's projects and publications can be found in the description of this podcast on our Appraising Risk website. So check it out if you're interested in learning more about Anna's current research on multidirectional exchanges of materia medica and healing objects, ideas, and practices around the Indian Ocean region. Uh, thank you also to our postdoctoral fellows for their questions, and thank you to you, our listeners, for downloading and for listening. Once again, my name is Renee Manderville, and you have been listening to the Indian Ocean World podcast. The Indian Ocean World podcast would like to acknowledge the generous support of the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. This podcast series is part of the SSHRC-funded partnership project Appraising Risk, Past and Present, interrogating historical data to enhance understanding of environmental crises in the Indian Ocean world.